Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Acts 8. Uh, again, we'll be looking at verses 26 through 40. Uh, now, over the last few weeks in chapter 8, uh, Philip has helped us see the gospel of Jesus breaking out from Judea and into Samaria because of the great persecution that arises after Stephen's stoning, Jesus' followers, including Philip, who we hear about, scatter from Jerusalem. But they take the good news of Jesus with them. And that message is joyfully received earlier in chapter 8 by a surprising group, the Samaritans. Once a separate people viewed with suspicion, now... By faith in Jesus, they're seen as fellow citizens in the kingdom, under the same Lord, filled with the same Holy Spirit. What we're actually seeing in Acts, if we kind of zoom out a little bit, what we're seeing in Acts is just what Jesus said would happen. Jesus is building His church through the faithful witness of His apostles and local leaders like Philip. And it's happening through conversions. People are converting to Christ, which is to say that they are experiencing a radical change of life. People are taking the trust that they used to put in one thing, and they're redirecting it toward Jesus. They are renouncing old allegiances, and they are aligning themselves with Jesus and the kingdom of God. This is the way that Jesus grew his church. It's through conversions. He is taking people who were once radically separated from God and from each other, and he's uniting them to himself and to each other. But in this next account uh, of conversion, we see a hint about where the story is heading. Uh, And this is in fulfillment of what was spoken long ago. It was said in the Psalms that when God does His saving work, Ethiopia will extend her hand to God in allegiance. And here, that promise bears fruit in the Ethiopian eunuch. And we don't even know his name. And yet, in his conversion, we see the Lord bringing near, bringing into his kingdom the most foreign person that a Jew could have imagined. And in this black African man, we see our story too. Because we too are Gentiles who once were far off but have been brought near by the blood of Christ our peace who brings all kinds of people into his family. This This story shows us both what it means to be a Christian and how a person becomes a Christian. And we're going to explore this conversion story by asking three questions, for which I'm indebted to another pastor for proposing. First, who converts? That that is to say, who is the agent of conversion? Second, Where does conversion happen? That's about the context of conversion. The the third question is, what is the instrument of conversion? Uh, When the agent of conversion works, what does he use? So those are our three questions. Let's start with the first one. When a person comes to faith in Jesus, who does the converting? 
Well, just kind of consider the list of characters in this passage. We can't really say that the eunuch converted himself because in verse 31, he actually admits his own helplessness. He says, I need someone to guide me. And so if it's not the eunuch, then that leads us to Philip, right? Uh, Philip, who told the eunuch the good news about Jesus. The gospel teller does the converting, right? No. No. Because there's another person in this passage. Look at verse 26. An angel of the Lord told Philip to head south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. The the text then emphasizes this is a desert place. In other words, the Lord sends a message to Philip saying, go out to this place where you wouldn't expect anybody to be. And to his credit, what does Philip do? He goes. And once he's there, Philip sees someone, this eunuch. We'll, We'll talk more about him later. But Philip sees him in his chariot, which was probably more like a coach than a war chariot that, you, that we normally conceive of. And given his status, and given how far he's going, the eunuch is probably surrounded by servants on foot. You, you don't travel long distances in the ancient world by yourself, especially through desert areas. But look at what happens next in verse 29. Look there. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. It's the Lord again, this time speaking through his spirit. Of course, Philip has a role to play in all of this, but we're getting the sense now that the spirit's the one in charge. That the spirit directs Philip from the beginning and then nudges him along the way. Why? Why does the spirit have to do that? Because otherwise nothing would happen. Uh, Just put yourself in Philip's shoes. If you saw a prince with his vast retinue in a desert place, would your first thought be, you know, I should really go up and talk to him? I bet he wants to talk to me. Now, human beings do not do this. But at the Spirit's direction, Philip runs up to a chariot, a chariot which doesn't seem to stop, by the way, and has a conversation on the trot that leads to this wealthy royal advisor inviting a stranger from the desert that he had just met to sit with him. The progressive prompting of the Spirit produces a conversation and a conversion that was, humanly speaking, preposterous. Because beyond human class barriers was this ethnic barrier. The the Samaritans that we heard about earlier in chapter 8, who just came to Christ, yes, they were viewed as a separate people, but they still had ancient ethnic connections to God's people. But even if this eunuch were a God-fearer, which is a technical term, and that's indicated by his journey to Jerusalem for worship and his reading of the Scriptures, even if he were a God-fearer, he was still a Gentile. And it was a radical thing for a Jew like Philip, even a Greek-speaking Jew like Philip, to approach such a person. But we have to see here that Philip is not the radical. The Spirit is the radical because he's the one driving all of this. 
And think, too, about how this is a desert place. And yet, at precisely the moment when Philip concluded telling the good news about Jesus, presumably ending the same way that Peter had uh, on the day of Pentecost with a call to repentance and baptism, at that very moment, they came upon some water in a desert place? As another writer says, the coincidences are too numerous to be coincidences. The Spirit is in all of this. I mean, look, we've seen before, already in Acts, how slow the church was to really understand and to implement Jesus' mission. Uh, From our vantage point today, God's plan to include the Gentiles in His great rescue plan, it seems so obvious to us because we're Gentiles. But in space and time, the church had to be led into this truth. It had to be shown God's heart for the nations, and it was the Spirit who led them into that. And it was, well, I should say, another points out that absolutely no other force could produce this conversion. Unfortunately, every place the Christian leaders were being called to open their arms to someone of a different race or a different culture, God had to practically beat them over the head with the Holy Spirit. I mean, In just a couple of chapters, Peter himself is going to have to see the same vision three times and hear a direct message from the Spirit to go with these Gentiles that are knocking at your door before it even begins to click that the gospel of Jesus is for the Gentiles too. All this is to simply say, if our question is, who converts people? then the answer of the Scripture is the Holy Spirit of God. Not the one speaking, certainly not the one listening. The Holy Spirit is the one who converts people to Christ. And that is both humbling and encouraging for us. It's humbling because now we are aware of how powerless we really are. We didn't change our own hearts, and we can't change the heart of our neighbor. We can't change the hearts of our children or our co-workers. We are forced into a position where we must humbly depend on the Spirit as we move toward people who are not yet Christians. But we take real encouragement from this, that if the Spirit sent Philip into a desert place to convert one man, then it must be because the Lord is far more committed to saving people than we are. If the Spirit is the agent of conversion, then we can know for sure that Jesus' words are true. All that the Father has given Him will come to Him. He has other sheep that He must bring in, and they will listen to His voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And this truth frees us to engage people who are not yet Christians with boldness and patience. Boldness because where the Spirit is working, conversion is unstoppable. His grace really is irresistible. But patience because we know that radical conversion is like many things in which God's timing is not at all like ours. When we remember that the Spirit is the one who converts people, we will rest in the knowledge, like I was telling the kids, that the Spirit has been at work in a person long before we ever met them, and He will be in that, at work in that person after we're gone from their lives.
But recognizing the Spirit's role as the one who converts does not negate our role. Far from it. Now we need to consider that second question. Where does conversion happen? What's the context for conversion? Well, you need to know some things about this eunuch. This man, he's at the top. He is powerful. He's a court official of Candace, which was not a woman's name, but rather the title of the queen of the Ethiopians. So he's elite. And he's wealthy, wealthy enough to afford a personal copy of the Isaiah scroll. At a time when there might be one scroll for the entire community, we're talking about tremendous wealth here. And on top of that, he's super educated. The ancient kingdom of Ethiopia is closer to what we would call today the Sudan. Uh, It's related to uh, Cush in the Old Testament. But here is a man who travels great distances, and he reads Hebrew well enough to sit down with it and read it aloud and meditate on it. This guy is, he's fantastic, he's phenomenal, he's well-educated, he's well-rounded. Like, you, you don't meet too many people like this. And so when Philip goes up to him and asks, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand how beautiful his response is? how spirit-empowered his response is, he humbly admits, how can I understand unless somebody guides me? We, you and I know how powerful people are, often. The, the more successful a person is, the less they feel the need for others to help them figure stuff out. I'm capable. I'm independent. I can do this on my own. But really, all of us are naturally that way. Uh, Another said that when you think about it, nobody wants to admit how stupid they are in spiritual things and find somebody who knows something more. But, he adds, if you don't, you're not going to have your life changed by God because the Holy Spirit works through community. The agent of conversion is the Spirit, but the context of conversion is community. Community is the God-ordained context for conversion. A person who is spiritually needy needs one of God's people to help them. Obviously, I'm not denying the necessity of the Spirit's work or the necessity of the Word, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But I am saying that people who are not yet Christians need Christians to approach them, sit with them, engage them, listen to them, know them, Understand them. Because conversion may represent the entrance into the believing community, but conversion does not ordinarily happen unless a a person first has access to the believing community. You are the ones who are positioned to give that to them. To help you move toward people, that people that you already know who are not yet Christians, I want you to look at how Philip interacts with this eunuch. We, we already know that Philip is sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. He is willing to venture out of his comfort zone and talk to somebody that he would not ordinarily interact with. That is faith producing obedience in Philip. But, but look at how he approaches. 
even before he speaks, he does something profound, something that we have to notice. He, he listens. Did you catch that in the story? He heard what the man was reading because the man was reading out loud, which was the convention at the time. Philip listens as if he's already getting the idea that the Spirit got there ahead of him and has been at work before him. So Philip is paying attention to what the Spirit is already doing in this man's life. We have to learn how to do that kind of listening as we engage people. The Spirit is working. Look for Him. Listen. And when he speaks, listen how gentle yet clear he is. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip is searching here. He isn't telling yet. That'll come. But first he wants to understand this man. Uh, But this is a profoundly respectful way of saying, hey, I know that you don't know the spectacular good news that what you just read is talking about. But I do know, and I can help you. Are you interested? He, he honors this man, but he's not flattering him. He, he invites without pushing or even preaching. He, he draws a clear line between them. There's a difference between you and me, but he does it in a way that's not abrasive. It's not condescending. This is how we must move toward people too. This is the way to be present with somebody who doesn't know the Lord. There's so much more that could be said here. I'm I'm hoping maybe we can have a class on evangelism and outreach uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future. But, But for the eunuch, Philip's presence, his respectful and warm presence, is a powerful tool in the hands of the Spirit, because it represents something that Judaism itself could not offer to this man. Because under the law of Moses, the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, would have been excluded from the worshiping community on two counts. First, he's a Gentile, which means he cannot enter the temple. Now, a full proselyte to Judaism who has submitted himself to circumcision and obliged himself to keep the law of Moses could maybe enter in, but even that was not an option for this man because he was a eunuch. Now, in the ancient world, the word for eunuch was used for various officials of the royal court. It did not necessarily mean that that the individual was physically a eunuch, a castrated man. But here, Luke not only calls this man a eunuch, but then he adds a court official, which would be totally redundant if Luke only meant eunuch in the wider sense. But emphasizing his altered flesh forces us to consider this man in light of Deuteronomy 23.1, which says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. We're not going to take the time to get into the reasons for that. What we have to grasp here is that inclusion in community was the very thing that was out of the question for this man. Verse 27 tells us he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And so we wonder, was he surprised when he got there to find himself barred from the worshiping community? Consigned to the outside because of his flesh, 
because he wasn't whole. But we don't know if he was surprised. But when the Spirit sent Philip to him, and Philip sits with him, and Philip listens to him, it is in that community that the gospel sinks into this man and he is radically converted. There's one last thing about community that you have to see here. After Philip shares the good news about Jesus and the eunuch embraces Jesus, they come to some water. Listen to how Tim Keller puts this. Notice the eunuch does not turn to Philip and say, I've had a religious experience, but I don't want anybody evaluating it. It's between me and God. I, I believe religion is a private thing. No, listen. You can pray a prayer asking Jesus into your life as an individual, but to be baptized, you have to get somebody else to do it. He, he the eunuch, knows enough to say, I know you won't baptize me unless you evaluate he says, why shouldn't I be baptized? Evaluate me. You've heard what I just said. In other words, baptism is a communal act. Baptism means that you have to get somebody else to do it. You have to get somebody else to do it. Because when Jesus saves a person, he usually saves them through community into community. He brings them into the community of the redeemed, by sending the redeemed to those who are far off. Again, I, I think we probably need a class on this because there's a lot more to say, but we need to move on. So, first, the Spirit is the agent of conversion. And second, community is the context for conversion. But, but third, what is the instrument of conversion? When the Spirit works in a person to bring them to faith, what does He use? Look back at verse 32. The eunuch's hung up on something, right? He's wrestling with something simultaneously compelling and confusing to him. Listen again to the passage he was just reading from Isaiah. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? He's reading about the suffering servant of God from Isaiah 53. And his question to Philip is, who is this? Is it the prophet or someone else? Why do you think he's asking that? Why does it matter to him who this is who's speaking? I want you to think about who this eunuch is. Do you know why the word for royal official and a physical eunuch came to be the same? It's pretty simple, actually. If you were not of the royal family yourself, but you wanted to move in the circles of power, the only way for a man to be trusted among the royal female persons would be through castration. Unless you became a eunuch indeed, you could not make it up to the top. That was so common that the word eunuch came to mean something more like prime minister. Sometimes that choice was willingly made. 
to make it to the pinnacle of power meant suffering the loss of relationship and the potential for children. You understand, people today still do that. People sacrifice relationships all the time to make it to the top. But it's also true that other times this was forced upon a person. An enslaved person might suffer this unjustly because of their master's insecurities. We don't know this eunuch's whole story, but we can say that he had made it to the top. But he's paid a heavy price. But but what's even more striking is that what he has obviously is not enough for him. He is clearly searching for something else. I mean, he's heard about the God of Israel, and he made an expensive and arduous journey to Jerusalem to worship, only to find the temple shut to him. But he's still searching. And something, he knows that there is something in what he just read. And you know that feeling. You think that making it to the top will fill you up, but it doesn't. You think that great learning will fill you up, but it doesn't. You think the opposite way of this man. You choose to have a family, but it doesn't fill you up either. Neither does financial security or promotions or the attention of others. We choose these things to fill us up, but they don't work. But this eunuch is seeing someone like him in the prophet's words. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? You understand that saying. Here is someone who dies childless, who has no generation coming from him. Here is someone who dies childless, who voluntarily becomes a eunuch, who, is voluntarily, who voluntarily cuts himself off without descendants. But more than that, he's someone who suffers tremendous injustice and yet does so willingly, submitting himself to the point of death. And in the context of Isaiah, it's also clear that this person is voluntarily suffering, dying childless through injustice as a substitute for people who are deeply sinful in the eyes of God. Who is this? Of course the eunuch is captivated. He's seeing someone that's experiencing everything he is experiencing and yet doing so as a substitute. And, it's, and that's the moment that Philip comes up asking if he needs help. Of course, he says, who is this? Who submits to injustice and death and childlessness willingly for someone else's sake? And Philip says, oh, that's Jesus. He's the substitute. He did this for you. Let me tell you about him. When the Spirit converts a person, what does he use? He uses the good news of Jesus. Radical conversion happens when a person grasps that Jesus is the one who experienced everything that we do, but he did it so he could be our substitute. His life was lived for us. And the death he died, he suffered for us, for our sin. As God, he entered into the human experience so that he could bring us into his. 
And our hearts are captivated and our lives are changed when we see Him and we love Him and we put our hope in Him. At the end of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, it, it talks about two men, two kind of friends, Sidney Carlton and Charles Darnay. Sidney is in love with Lucy, but Lucy marries Charles. Charles, however, is arrested during the French Revolution and he is condemned to die. He is in prison with the other prisoners who are going to be executed the next day. They're going to go to the guillotine. And that night, Sidney sneaks in and says to Charles, Look, we resemble each other. We have always resembled each other. Let me take your place. You go to Lucy. You go and live with her. You go and have children. You have a family. Charles won't do it. If, and if I remember correctly, Sidney has him knocked out and, and pushed out. And he takes his place. Well, there's also a young girl, uh, a seamstress, who's in there. And she's going to be executed the next day. She's been condemned to die as well. And she walks up to him because she knows Charles Darnay. And she begins speaking with Sidney as if he is Charles thinking, of course, that they know each other. And Sidney tries to keep up the ruse for a little bit, and he says, well, yes, of course, it's nice to see you. But suddenly the girl realizes, this isn't Charles. She looks, and she sees it's somebody else who has taken his place. And her eyes get big, and it dawns on her. Suddenly she says, are you dying for him? And Sidney says, yes, for his wife and for his child. And it's, it's basically after that that she says, you know, I'm having a lot of trouble facing my death, but if you, oh brave stranger, would just hold my hand, I think I could do it. The wonder of his sacrificial love changed her. And it wasn't even for her. Imagine what comes into the human soul when you look at Jesus and your eyes get big and you realize what he has done. You say, are you dying for me? And he says, yes. And he says, I'll hold your hand through the rest of life you'll be able to face anything. The people in your lives who don't know Jesus are still looking for him all the time. They don't even know it, but they're looking for him. Like our Philip often says, people are asking for the gospel all of the time. Only they're saying it in ways that we're not expecting and so we don't really hear them. But when people talk about their fears their anxieties, their hurts, their longings, their guilt. They're really asking for the good news about Jesus who tells us, don't be afraid. And then he shows us his nail-scarred hands. They're looking for Jesus. They're asking for Jesus who says, don't be anxious. I'm a good shepherd and my Father knows everything that you need. 
They're asking for Jesus who entered into our suffering and took on himself all the miseries of this life, being crushed beneath the weight of it all so that he could raise us up from the dead with him. He's the one who fulfills every longing you and I have ever had. It's someone longing for acceptance, for security, for a home. It's someone like this eunuch longing for inclusion or for a legacy that endures after we're gone. Listen to what the eunuch would have heard God say if he had kept reading just a little further down the Isaiah scroll. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That is the promise. This promise of a place inside God's house and a lasting name that's better than sons of daughters. That promise is what this eunuch found in Jesus. Once a childless servant excluded from the temple courts, now in Christ, a welcomed, fruitful son of the king. You can understand why his joy is not diminished when the Spirit, once again taking the lead, carries Philip off to Azotus. The eunuch isn't phased because he found what he was looking for. Or rather, he's been found by the one who was looking for him. In the eunuch, we see the excitement of Jesus, his eagerness to meet our longings. He said that his gospel was supposed to go to the ends of the earth. But in the eunuch, we see that Jesus is not going to wait for his church to get to Africa. He orchestrates this whole scene to bring this man from the ends of the earth into his kingdom. He is the first Gentile convert, a sexually altered black African man. And he is Jesus' sign of where the story is going. He's a preview of the coming international expansion of God's kingdom. An expansion that, at this point, has reached you. Because Jesus was no less excited to bring a person like you to himself than he was this man. That's why we call this good news. You believe it? Amen. Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the grace that you have shown to people like us. We who are far off, you, by your grace, have brought near by the blood of Jesus. The same blood that covers this man covers us as we simply believe in Jesus our Lord. Lord, would you stir up our hearts and, and help us to understand how you converted us by your grace, by your spirit, by the good news of Jesus, as we saw him and loved him. And would you use us, Father, as instruments in your hand to extend your kingdom by sharing the good news of Christ with many. Even if it's as simple as saying, you need to get to know this Jesus. Would you come with me so that we can learn about him together? Father, do this for the praise of Christ, glory, 
that he might be magnified and your kingdom might grow. We pray this all in his name. Amen.